1 Kings chapter 20, there is a uh, story in this chapter that relates to two battles and a treaty um, that I would like to share with you a bit today because it tells us a bit about who Ahab is, this king that we are continuing to learn about in the story of Elijah. So 1 Kings chapter 20, let us read from verse 1 down to verse 11. Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him, with horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine, your loveliest wives and children are mine. The king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they will search your house, the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put it in their hands and take it. So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children, my silver and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that you sent for to your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. And Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, Let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. Let us bow before the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that you will direct our hearts today. Teach us to worship you. Give us those things that are good for the soul and good for the heart and living before you and give us the courage to remember that we have a God who prevails, a God who is the God of the universe, a God who will not fail. Thank you, Father, for the word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This whole chapter is, of course, an interlude in the story of Elijah, but it does tell us about the king who is the king of of Israel, the northern ten tribes. Not a good guy. He was a guy who was basically run and struggled between two um, different schools of thought, and, and his heart was rather timid, and yet he was also a very angry type person. This evening, to give you a little bit of, a, of an understanding of our intention, we've been studying through the book of Ecclesiastes, and as I looked at this text of Scripture, I found a message by a guy named Alexander McLaren that takes the verse 11 and unpacks it from the perspective of what families need to be teaching their children. So I thought, well, I, you know, I've got to share this tonight with you and, and uh, in our Bible study. So dads and moms be aware, young people be aware, there's a, there are some real good lessons in here uh, that can be shared with young people, and I, I love the way he approaches this. So in order to whet your appetite, let me read a couple of paragraphs which introduce what this chapter is about, and, and I love the way he puts it. Ahab, king of Israel, was but a poor creature, and like most weak characters, he turned out a wicked one, because he found that there were more temptations to do wrong than inducements to do right. 
Like other weak people, too, he was torn asunder by the influence of stronger wills. On the one side, he had a termagant of a wife. Go look it up. Stirring him up to idolatry and all evil. And on the other side, Elijah thundering and lightning at him. So the poor man was often reduced to perplexity. Once in his lifetime, he did behave like a king with some flash of dignity. My text comes from that incident. His next neighbor and consequently his continual enemy was the king of Damascus. He had made a raid across the border, was dictating terms so severe as to invite even Ahab to courageous opposition. His back was at the wall and he mustered up courage to say no. That provoked a bit of blustering, a bravado from the enemy who sent back a message, the gods do also unto me and more also if the dust of Samaria will suffice for handfuls for all the people that follow me. And then Ahab replied in words of our text, they have a dash of contempt and sarcasm all the more galling because of their unanswerable common sense. The time to crow and clap your wings is after you have fought. Samaria is not a heap of dust just yet. Threatening men live long. No, threatened men live long. The battle began and the bully was beaten. And for once, Ahab tasted the sweets of success. It's a great message. We'll be sharing parts of it with you tonight as we uh, gather because it speaks specifically to young people. And I think there are lessons that are great for moms and dads to carry with them. So, and it fits right in with what's the purpose of life in Ecclesiastes, our section in chapter 12, we're about ready to jump into. But here in 1 Kings, I want to share with you some lessons that just basically cover not just a history lesson. Interestingly enough, the Bible, though it is accurate history, is not a history book. As you go through the scriptures, you will be frustrated if you're just looking for history. There is a key date in, uh, in archaeology and in history to be able to identify where things fit and what king was king when. And that key date comes about two years after this event. It's a battle that um, Ahab was part of, the Battle of Karkar. I think I mentioned it to you before, about 853 B.C. In that battle, Ahab was uh, in allegiance with 11 other kings. And Sennacherib, coming from Assyria, was coming on down to the northwestern area of of Syria, and he was coming into that area to try to conquer and, and beat off the enemies and wanted to make them all subservient. And there has been found a, a, a big stone block with writing on it that lists kings. And it was Sennacherib who put the, the, uh, the archaeological find there. It was supposed to uh, celebrate his victories, but he actually was defeated. He talks about 12 kings who came against him. There are 11 listed. Ahab is one of them, so that's how we know Ahab lived, another source outside the Bible. But that was a key battle that helps us identify when and where, because all these kings are named. Well, the Bible doesn't even mention that battle. What the Bible does is tells us of an event before and an event after that, that event, that take, that, which took place. This is the event that took place before. There was a battle that was going to come, because there's this guy named Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad was the king of, of Damascus. In, the, in their day, there were kings of city-states, and those city-states would have vassal city-states underneath them. And so he had about 10 or 11 or 12 in different city-states that came along under him and set siege to Samaria. And his father was not a good man either. He had uh, set siege to Samaria and had taken away some cities already from Ahab's grandfather. 
And so as we look at our, our text, we will find, reading through the chapter, that God's going to set some things right. Not all the things are set right yet. There will be another battle that takes place after the Battle of Karkar, in which Ahab will die. And it, it, it is basically precipitated because Ben-Hadad doesn't give everything back that he owes Israel. And so this is not a complete victory. It's an interesting thing that God brings us into the, the text of Scripture. It's designed to show us the nature of Ahab and the blindness of Ahab and also God's power. So as we've been studying Elijah, we've been going through these chapters. You might scratch your head and say, why is this here? Elijah's not in the chapter. He appears later on, but he's not in this chapter. Why? Well, because God is showing us that he's always at work whether Elijah is involved or not. God does not have just one tool in the toolbox. God has many. And God will use another prophet in this chapter besides Elijah. There are things for Elijah to do, but God has a plan and a purpose. And though Elijah wanted to see something big and great, and that's why he went off to Sinai, as we saw in the last few weeks, uh, God said it's the still small voice. Go back, train Elisha. Go back and anoint these kings. And Elijah does that. In the meantime, God has a plan. And he's going to continue like the steady drip of a faucet. He's going to accomplish what he has set about to do. God will prevail. That's important for us to know. It's a very simple lesson in our day, too. God will prevail. It will not always be the big flashes in the pan. But there will be the works that he does. And as we pray for an unsaved loved one, God will prevail. It may not be something you see right away or maybe even your lifetime, but God will win. He will bring the victory. So we find in our text of Scripture about six different sections. We're not going to be able to get through all of them. But first of all, we find Ahab under siege. The winds of war are what are introduced in verse 1. We will also see that there is a gauntlet thrown down in, in the next segment as Ahab is under siege in verse 1 and the different things occur, and we've read through that section. Ahab says no, verses 7 through 12. We'll also find that God sets the terms of warfare, verses 13 through 22, and then God provides total victory in the next segment. As we come to the end, there's a treaty that is made, and in that treaty we find that defeat is snatched from the jaws of victory, because of Ahab's feckless heart. And so it's an interesting chapter with uh, quite interesting stories for us, but great lessons for our life. We see him under siege in verse 1. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. I'm sorry, 32 kings were with him. And with horses and chariots, and he made up, went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Samaria has been weakened by the drought. It's been weakened by all sorts of other things. And of course, with a, a king whose mind is absent-minded, we're going to find him later just fussing about a vineyard. This is not a king worried about his country. This is not a king who cares. It's not a king who's motivated by the suffering of his people. It's not a king who really does seem to care for anybody but himself. So King Ahab, this is his character, but, and he's so careless that when the siege is brought against his capital city and the king Ben-Hadad says, give me the choice of your wives, the choice of your children, your gold and your silver, he says, yeah, I'll do that. Because he just wants it to go away. Doesn't really care. There is nothing that seems to bother him until the king turns around and says, okay, you're under siege and don't forget this. I'm going to send my servants in and they're going to go through everything you have and not just yours, but everybody there who, who is um, anybody of importance. We're going to walk through their houses and anything like you like, we're going to take. 
So if we can figure out that you have a memory in that picture or you have a, something that you have treasured from your great-great-grandparents, we're going to take that because you like it and we're going to carry it away. Isn't that how brigands and criminals act? Isn't that the way the unsaved mind works? Yeah, absolutely. Here's the enemy of God's people because God's people are weak spiritually, that northern part of Israel at this time, God's people are weak spiritually. They, they have not hearkened to the voice of God. They did not respond to the power of God's message, and it seems like the all hope is lost. There is going to be an enemy at the gates, and that enemy at the gates is, not, is going to see what he can take, and he's going to take anything he can get. And so since the first offer was so, the first order was so easily accepted, this king says, well, I'm going to take more. Take it away from you. So Ahab calls in his elders and they begin to talk and discuss. And the elders say, this thing you will not do. They let him know. And so what we find is that the response goes back to Ben-Hadad. The first thing you said, I will do that, but I cannot do the rest. You cannot have your free reign here. So he sends that message back. And of course, Ben-Hadad blusters and goes on. Verse 10, Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, the gods do so to me and more also. If enough dust is left in Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. Talk about braggadocious conversation. He's saying, not only will we take your gold and your silver, but when we destroy you and flatten your land, I'm going to have so many people with me that they're going to be gathering everything they can. There won't be enough dust left for them to even have a handful left to carry home. There's going to be nothing that you have. You're going to be decimated. Everything will be destroyed. People do talk that way, don't they? So we find Ahab, as McLaren says, to this height of the best thing he could possibly ever happen in his life with a statement in verse 11. So the king of Israel answered and said, tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. In other words, don't count your chickens till the eggs are all hatched. Don't be guaranteed of tomorrow until you have actually come to the end of the battle. It's the guy who is victorious at the end and taking off his armor that is able to say, I've done such, I've done this. And that's where McLaren goes in his message, by the way. It's the idea of saying, look, our young people need to know that the elders around them are there for a reason. And though life, especially in our day and age, looks like it's for the young, there is, there is something to be learned by somebody who's able to come to the end and take off the armor having been standing for, having stood for the Lord and able to say, yes, I have accomplished a few things because of God's grace. It's a great message, and I trust you'll find it to be a benefit for your family as we share it. So he says, don't boast like that. That boast is empty. You know, it's interesting to see what God does. Look at verse 12. It happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he and the kings were drinking at the command post that he sent to his servants, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. And suddenly a prophet approached Ahab. Now, God didn't have to do this. He could have let the people just become destroyed and humbled, but God did intervene. And he does so for a reason. Our verse tells us why. Suddenly a pro prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Why does God show his grace to an ungodly nation? So that we may know that God is the Lord. 
God actually states this twice through his prophet, here at this victory, and then at a subsequent battle that's all part of this chapter, God says the same thing, that you may know that I am the Lord. As a matter of fact, isn't it similar words that Elijah said? God will send fire from heaven, that you may know that he is the Lord. And the people responded, the Lord, he is God. God's intent in all that he does is so that we might know that he is the Lord. Somebody might say to you, why does God allow terrible things to happen in the world? Well, I don't know the reason why, but the ultimate reason is so you may know God is the Lord, that you may know God exists. I don't know how God's going to bring that about, but that you may know that God is the Lord, that I am the Lord. So Ahab said, by whom? He said, thus says the Lord, by the young elder leaders of the provinces. Now, understand what he's saying here. How would you establish a battle plan? Your battle plan would normally be to go out there and try to, to send your best in order to be able to show your prowess. But that's not what God tells him to do. Grab the young guys, the young leaders. Now, young leaders or privileged people are probably not the battle-hardened types, are they? They're people of privilege. So what he says is get the ones who are the young ones who really don't know how to defend themselves well. And that's how God's going to bring about the victory. What's interesting is from here, Ahab, to show you that God is the Lord, they're the ones that I'm going to use. So you set the battle plan. That's what he says. Verse 15, then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces and there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. So they went out at noon. Ahab takes the battle plan because God says, go for it, go do it. He puts the battle plan there and says, okay, if it's these that God's going to win with, then send them first. The news gets to Ben-Hadad that these young people who are uh, basically the neophytes are coming out. And he says, well, go kill them or capture them. doesn't matter to me, but take them. Bring them to me. And of course, the, Assyrian are, the Syrians come out, all these different city-states under Ben-Hadad. They come out to, to take over these young people, and they are destroyed. The young people kill everybody that's near them, and one after another. Then the 7,000 descend, and they destroy the, the enemy. And the enemy is defeated, and Ben-Hadad takes flight and runs away. Verse 22, we read this. The prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go strengthen yourself, take note. And see what you should do. For in the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you. He's coming again. So get ready. Verse 23, then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are the gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. Isn't it amazing how an unsaved mind is superstitious about God's power? I sometimes think that when an unsaved person says to you, will you pray for me? There's a superstition at work because something about you is saintly and therefore they need you to pray. Their faith is in you, not God. The key is to turn their attention to God. Superstitions. When you remove yourself from the word of God, your view of God becomes a superstitious one. Make sure your view of God is informed by the scriptures because the scriptures are what tell you who they were there to reveal to you who God really is. So they think that God, Jehovah, is the God of the hills, because that's where they had the victory. But God can't possibly also be part of the plain. Can he give victory there? Their view of their gods was that there is a limit to every god, like the fish god Dagon that you read about, or the god Molech, or these other gods of the Canaanites, and then the gods of the Philistines. They all had their little city-states or places where their gods were more powerful, they thought. And they assumed the same of Jehovah. 
And so because of this superstition, they said, you know, if we attack them where there's a level playing field, we'll be okay. We'll defeat them easily because their God doesn't come down off the mountains. We have gods that are good for the valley. And so in verse 24, so do this thing, dismiss the kings, each from his position, put the captains in their places, literally take away the people who are the kings of these city-states leading their own groups. So they're not afraid to lose their soldiers and put somebody else in as a captain who has allegiance to you and we will prevail. It was sound thinking in a way. He says, and you will muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, then we will fight against them. In the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went to, up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given the provisions. And they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, while the Syrians filled the countryside. In other words, God's going to use a small thing again to beat the bigger thing. God always does that always uses the small things to trip up the bigger things. And the man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The, God, the Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore, I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Ahab's not listening, but God is going to display that he is God. They encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was that on the seventh day, the battle was joined and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city and then a wall fell on 27,000 of them who were left. Apparently some were hidden underneath the wall trying to find defense. Others were up on the wall and God miraculously brought it down, wiped out this army that Ben-Hadad was dependent upon. And then it says, And Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city, into an inner chamber, literally in the Hebrew language, he's running from room to room to room to room, trying to find a place to hide. And what we find here is verse 31, Then his servant said to him, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put on sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads, literally, and you'll see this in pictures in the Middle East, on some of their, their boastings of their victories, you'll see the, the defeated ones with a rope around their neck as if they are a servant, a slave that can be attached to the chariot of the victorious king. And so they put ropes around their neck to show their subservience, put on sackcloth, and they went to King Ahab, and apparently it appealed to his vanity. They went to the king of Israel, perhaps he will spare your life. So they wore sackcloth around their waists, put ropes around their necks, and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. This is just to find out what Ahab's mood was. He said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. Now Ahab knows that Ben-Hadad had done some things to take away God's cities. He had done things specifically to, to defeat Jehovah. And yet Ahab doesn't turn to God, though he should know that God is the Lord. Instead, he says, he's my brother. I think that what Ahab was thinking was, Assyria is on the rise. Syria, Damascus, is in between me and the enemy. So if I can make him my friend, then I have a buffer to be defended. And I can, be, I can have warning. I can have somebody as an ally. So he says, he's my brother. He should have turned to the Lord because the Lord would have said his life is forfeit. This guy was a bad guy. And just because he was humbled, because he was defeated, doesn't mean his heart was changed. As a matter of fact, we will find his heart was not changed as we go further in future chapters. 
So Ahab was foolish in his alliance. He wanted peace. And so whatever treaty it would take, he wanted to have that peace. And so he says in verse 33, that of the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasped at his word and said, where he said, your brother Ben-Hadad. So he said, go bring him. And Ben-Hadad came to him and he had him come up into his chariot. So Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities which my father took from your father, I will restore. Not every one of them, a few of them. And you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus. Trade is opened up, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. God has to send a prophet to show Ahab that he was wrong. That prophet comes with a head wound and stands before Ahab and says, I was in the battle and I was given the command of a prisoner and I did not, I was just busy and I didn't see to my order. And so he said, now I'm either my life is forfeit or I owe this enormous sum of money. And King Ahab, looking at this prophet, disguised prophet, said, you've already said your own sentence. The prophet takes off the bandages and the king recognizes that he is a prophet. And he hears the words of the prophet, verse 41, hasten to take away the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Then he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel was repentant? No. Went to his house, sullen and displeased, and came to Samaria. He thought he had a good treaty. But when God said this man's life has done things for which he is subject to capital punishment, his life was under the ban, he was to be killed, and yet Ahab let him go for the sake of peace, for the sake of, I guess, personal vanity, because he liked having a king say, here are these cities back. You're my brother, too. He gives up his life and gives up his kingdom because he disobeyed God. It's an amazing chapter. It instructs us and tells us why Ahab's life ended the way it did. It tells us how the unsaved mind doesn't understand the mind of God. It tells us how some people, without the agency of the Holy Spirit convicting their heart, can't understand God and his purposes. They remain in their superstition. And there are some simple lessons that are important for us to grasp. First of all, see God. God in this chapter is merciful to the undeserving. Even though it's not finished, his work is not finished, Samaria did not deserve God's victory. But in order that they might know that God is the Lord, God gave them victory twice. Gave them victory, brought the enemy into their hands, the control of their hands. God, because he is merciful, even to the undeserving. Christians, that's how we got saved in the first place. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve the death of his son so that we might live. We don't deserve anything God brings. So as we count our blessings, Christians, remember, every one of them is something we don't deserve. God is merciful. When you're a blessing to someone else, it's not because they deserve it. It's because God blessed you. And that's why we're blessings to others. It's an amazing lesson. God is merciful to the undeserving. Another lesson that we find here too is that the ungodly mind has trouble recognizing who the enemy is. Isn't that true in our day and age? 
The ungodly mind has trouble recognizing who the enemy is. Who is the enemy? If anything, the ungodly mind will make the good things the enemy. Christians, may it not be you who has trouble recognizing the enemy of your soul. You have an enemy, an enemy who hates you uh, more than you can imagine. Satan does not love anything that bears the image of God. And even if you're not saved, Satan hates you because you are a bearer of the image of God. God made you. God created you in his image, though it's marred by sin. So he's not your friend. The ungodly mind is a hard time recognizing the enemy. Christians, don't let it be you who cannot recognize the enemy of your soul. And then don't burst, boast. Do not boast. When you say, I'm going to do this, and you're ready to crow about it, make sure you get it done and do so before you boast. God has very little patience for us when we boast ourselves of tomorrow or when we are in pride, stand and say, I, it'll never happen to me. Pride comes before a fall, doesn't it? So it's a little lesson for us. Do not boast. Let your boasting be in the Lord. I think another thing that we see in this passage is that wars and affairs of men are so that people can know the power of God. Let that be a lesson for you when people ask you those hard questions. Why would God allow this? Why would this terrible thing happen? Why would there be a hurricane that comes into New York City and leaves people powerless for, for days on end? And it's really to show the ineffectual work of man. There is a power of God. And it's designed to help us know that the power of God is bigger than us. And finally, superstitions of men are debilitating. Make sure that you know the God of the Scriptures, and you understand Him and allow the Word to reveal the truth to you about who He is. Don't live on a superstition of God. Don't pray to a superstitious God. Pray to the God of the universe. Pray knowingly. Look to the revelation of God in Scripture. So I trust that as we've looked at this chapter, it will introduce you to the heart of Ahab. It's kind of necessary to understand why he would do what he does in the next chapter that Elijah must come and deal with. And isn't it interesting that Ahab wouldn't recognize the real enemy and he sees Elijah and says, are you the one who troubles Israel? Isn't that a telling thing for us? I want to give you a moment or two to bow and talk to the Lord about the lessons we've shared. And I trust that you also will worship him in the few moments that we have before we turn to the next hymn. Father, I thank you for the privilege of the Word of God and recognizing that it is not a history book and yet its history is accurate. I pray that we would see the God of that history. Help us to understand and remember that this really is to teach us theology, how our lives should be operating. Teach us that there is an enemy. Teach us to recognize the enemy. Teach us to wait upon you and even the victories of life. And teach us to know that you bring victories so that we might see the power of God that is available and around us and, of course, within us. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Teach us, Father, to not listen for the cues of wisdom from the unsaved world, but to look to the cues of wisdom that come from the Word of God. Teach us, Father, to rejoice in you, and may we not be boasters. May we rejoice when you bring the victory, and may we give you all the glory. I pray that we might worship you out of a heart that is redeemed. If there's one without Christ as Savior today, I pray that you will open their eyes to their need, their soul's need. May they recognize that they're in a, a haze and a fog of superstition. They need to come to know you as Savior. Their sin is not forgiven. 
except through the blood of Jesus Christ. May they come to you for forgiveness and for cleansing and for new life. For Christians, I pray that you will help us to remember that we are in a business of this world of it's really serious. It's a life and death business. And may we live in a world recognizing that we're to be a testimony with a purpose to show forth God's glory and His grace until you call us home. May we rejoice, Father, that you do give the victory, that you are victorious in all, and that you are the God who shows your power from the heavens. Thank you, Father, for the mercy that we have received through your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.